Welcome to Everybody's Bad With Money, where we share stories and get real about personal finance. We make money talk fun. I'm Amelie. And I'm AJ. And you are super jazzed this morning. And I I am because I'm so excited about today's podcast. It's I'm, oh my God, I'm just so I'm ready. Let's do it. Let's go. Yay. Well, first things first, how are you? Oh, I'm really good. Um, my, um, one of my best friends gifted me with like the greatest sheets and duvet and like bed set of all time. She was like, she's like, it's a wedding gift. And I'm like, this is so generous. And then she's like, it's a pre-wedding gift. And I'm like, <laughs> I can't, if you get me anything for my wedding, like, I don't even know what I'm going to do. And then she's like, it's also your birthday coming up. So I wanted to get it out to you now. So you have like a nice package for your birthday. There's also like so much other stuff. She got me a bathrobe and <sighs> Cho- and so like thoughtful. unbelievable chocolates that are like to die for and um and a candle and she got bread a sweater and it was just like insane so her um her boyfriend owns a lobster shop in Malibu Ooh. and I literally like dream about this meal like I think about it all the time because it was yeah so I have a couple meals like that where I'm like <clears throat> yeah yeah yeah. In my dreams. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I just like, I cannot wait. I'm going back, um, to California in, uh, for a wedding in the end of April. And I literally, it's like my first stop. Cause I just mm. love this place. So anyway, so I'm like doing amazing. Um, the first day we got it, I didn't leave my bed. I, I was in my <laughs> bathrobe doing work in the bed. Um, I, I feel like I'm in a hotel. I, I didn't know that bedding could be like that. Um, I never put that together that like, oh, when you're in a hotel and you're in like that really comfy plush bed that like it, it's the comforter. I always thought it was like the bed. I don't know. (laughs) My mind's been blown. I feel super showered with love and, um, yeah, that's great. And I've slept really well because it's heavy. So I feel like it's been like pushing me down and, Mm -hmm. um, I think at first it made me like a little too tired. I was like, what's happening in the world? And now I just feel really well rested. So that's uh, my long story short for um, how I'm doing. How are you? <laughs> nice. I am doing great as well. I woke up with like a ton of energy. I think seriously, because we're going to record this podcast and it's just something I'm really interested to talk through. Um, and yeah. Yeah not too much to report. I'm doing pretty well. I feel like I I have been like busy, but it's good. Like I can't complain and yeah, sleeping well, doing well. I'm here. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> Works calm down. No, not oh. really. Well, a little bit. Yeah. I see the end point. So it's like, now I'm like, I, I see when it's going to calm down and um, that feels good. But I also like being busy isn't the worst thing because I've been feeling super productive and like I'm doing really well at work. And so that feels good. It's a wonderful feeling. Yeah. Um, in the course we go, um, in week eight, when we worked through career and income and stuff, Mm -hmm. um, I asked everybody in the course, like what busy feels like for them. Um, Mm -hmm. and it's so Mm -hmm. fascinating to hear the responses. Like, um, one person was like my best day ever. And other people were like overwhelmed. And yeah. I was like, okay, how do we change like the neurological relationship between busy and and negative stress? Like, how do we make it something that's like a you know? And are we busying ourselves? Like the just the whole concept of busy. Like, are we busy yeah. ourselves to distract, or are we genuinely like there's too much going on and we need to like slow down? Or is it good to be busy? Like just really redefining that word. There's so many words in our society that are so triggering um, that they don't have to be. Yeah, it's such a good point. I actually was thinking about this last night because it was my friend's birthday yesterday and I was so busy. Like I just had a busy day at work and we had like a, a person come into our apartment. So we had to like clean up everything just like for maintenance. And we also had there was just like a lot of random stuff going on and I wanted to go drop off this gift for her because she only lives like five minutes away from me so I was like getting in my car to go drop off like a baked good and stuff and 
I was driving back and I was like, oh, I'm stressed out driving right now. Like, and it's just because I haven't had a second to like calm down today, but it's, but I was thinking in my head, I was like, I don't need to be stressed right now. All I'm doing is driving. Like I can, I can calm myself down, but I just found myself being like kind of on edge and because I had such a busy day and I was like, okay, so how can I actually calm myself in these moments that don't need to be stressful? I was thinking a lot about that. It's, it's a really interesting concept. So what'd you come up with? Um, breathing and just like like driving slower. I was like, I don't, I was like, well, I was, I was also driving in a city. So it's like kind of stressful, but it was pretty late at night and there weren't that many people around. It was like nine 30. And I was like, I, I can slow down. Like I can drive slowly. I don't need to be on edge. I can breathe. I can like listen to calming music and I can start to set myself up for bedtime. And it was nice. nice. And I did that. <laughs> Love it. That's nice. yeah. you to drop off a fake good. What'd you make her? I actually made her bread, like a big loaf of sourdough bread. Oh, that's so sweet. Yeah. And I gave her a candle and I gave her a card with a cow on it because she loves cows. It was a pretty good gift. I gave her a bottle of champagne. Oh, yeah. I was pretty happy with it. That's so sweet. She must. Yeah, she deserves it. She deserves it. Oh, little Pisces. Do you have a lot of Pisces in your life? Because I'm a Pisces. I know you're one of your best friends is a Pisces. I guess yep. versus the Pisces. I'm a Pisces moon. Yeah, I have a lot of Pisces in my life. Yeah. My um two of my very good friends are Pisces moons. Yeah. They love me. We are emotional people. Love the Pisces. Okay. Um, anyways. Let's get into it. Yay! Okay. <laughs> so start us off with Amelie. Um, well, let's introduce our topic. Today we are going to be talking about women's financial history because it's women's history month but obviously this podcast and our work focuses on finances and we've done a lot of research (laughs) yeah we've done a lot of research and come up with some really interesting things to walk all of our listeners through um it's a lot of information that honestly like I didn't even know when I was doing research and we have a couple awesome women that we want to highlight who have done amazing things for women's finance throughout history. So we're really excited to dive into it. We're actually going to start off with just kind of a timeline of women's finances throughout history, because it's really interesting and it's important to kind of set the scene for what else we're going to talk about. Yay! Do it. Okay. So we found this uh, women's like financial history timeline from The Guardian, and we kind of like picked a couple things that we think are the most important. So we're going to be focusing on um, ancient history and then diving into really like U.S. financial history because we just don't have time to go through world history with finances. Um, So let's start out. So ancient Egypt, let's talk about women and finance in ancient Egypt. So in ancient Egypt, women hold equal financial rights with men, which is crazy. This is 3,100 BCE, and ancient Egyptian women were able to acquire, own, and dispose of property in their own name. They could enter into contracts in their own name. They could initiate initiate civil court cases and could also be sued, Um, and they could serve as witnesses in court cases. They could serve on juries, and they could witness legal documents, Um, which is really interesting because as time goes on, those rights are actually taken away. But a long, long time ago, women had um, a lot of equal rights to men in this ancient, ancient civilization. Yeah, it's, uh, it's very fascinating how it plays in and out through all the different cultures, because there's places where it was, you know, women were the, the head of the household, and then places it wasn't. So Okay, so let's talk about biblical era, 1800 BC and after. So under Jewish law, women have the right to own property and sue others in court without a man representing them. Wives cannot inherit directly from husbands at this time unless it is a gift or they have no children. But daughters can inherit if they don't have a brother. Um, yes. So classic (laughs) in the book of numbers, the fourth book of the Hebrew Bible lays down an early law of personal finance. If a man die and have no son, then ye shall cause his inheritance 
cause his inheritance to pass <laughs> on to his daughter. Sons who inherit are expected to use the estate to support the woman in the family. So it's still expected that the son is to take care of the, 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 the sisters, but he of course is in charge. Um, another fun, interesting fact about um, women in Judaism is that um, the reason why, so back in the day, the bloodline used to go through the father um, so they always say, if you, if your mother is Jewish, then you're Jewish because bloodline goes through the mother, but mm. that actually didn't, it, that wasn't the case for thousands and thousands of years. Um, the bloodline used to go through the father, but because of war and, um, mainly just war, they changed it to the mother because there were so many, um, fathers who were lost, oh. and, you know, so it, so that that's actually so fascinating because um, so many I, I can only speak to my own religion is mm-hmm. they believe that um, like this is law this is dogma but like we know for a fact that that this specific thing was changed therefore it's like why can't we change other things that are okay yeah. um, so fun fact okay go on. <laughs> okay in ancient Hinduism so this is like 1500 BC women have the right to control stridhan or property before marriage which includes gifts from parents friends and strangers as well as earnings from her own work divorce is not allowed and inheritance laws favor male family members yep ancient greece we're back uh we're back here no we were in egypt okay ancient greece (laughs) Women's financial rights are constrained compared to earlier societies. Women are not so allowed- going backwards. <laughs> no, I think, um, yeah, no, we're actually going forwards. Um, we're, it, we're in front of 1500 BC. No, I mean, in terms of the rights. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yes. <laughs> um, women are not allowed to inherit property or take a case to court unless a male guardian is in charge. Women can, however, trade and engage in industries such as tavern keeping, although work is the classical watering hole is reserved for the lower class. So also really interesting because like of ancient Greece and Rome where like women were trained in military. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's interesting that those rights were taken away. So as you were saying. Yeah, and then that's a perfect segue because next is ancient Rome, and it says the pendulum sw- the pendulum swings back as freeborn Roman women are allowed to divorce, mm. own property, and inherit. Divorce is easy to get, presaging the Christian opposition to splitting up marriages. But the husband has the legal right to keep the children, which makes zero sense. Nope, zero sense. Um, okay, interesting. Okay, now we're heading into Europe, eight hundreds. Anglo-Saxon law allow women to own their own property before and after marriage. In Norse societies, women are also allowed to conduct business as equal with men. Wow, go Christians. Yeah. What? What are your thoughts? It's okay right now. And then later on, they just crash and burn. But anyways, <laughs> England in the yeah, 11th. Good time for women. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. England 1100s. English common law, a combination of Anglo-Saxon and Norman traditions, leads to the creation of coverture. That's how you say that, right? Yeah. Which is the belief that married women, married men and women are one financial entity. Mm. As such, married women cannot own property, run taverns or stores or sue in court. They can't even run stores? Come on. Those financial rights could be enjoyed, however, by widows and spinsters. So <laughs> be a spinster. That's what yeah, you learn. <laughs> Over time, coverture is corrupted into the view that women are property of their husbands. This makes so much sense because I studied drama in college. And so we read a lot of like Oscar Wilde and mm-hmm. um, a ton of um, like mid-century uh, playwrights and authors and the women who were like widows or spinsters had such horrible like um, ways of being described in these yeah. in these literatures, and um, yeah, they had such a like such a negative connotation towards them um, because they were um, they were yeah they were like a spinster someone who's never married it's like oh god who's this yeah. person like not unionizing with somebody else and 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 it wasn't I mean the way that it was read was that like be having your own shop or having your own thing was not like considered a great thing but 
it was interesting. I mean, yeah. some of them, they were well-respected, but most of them, they were just like, you outsider. I know it's crazy. It just sh- goes to show that in that society, in order to like be a part of the society, you had to be married. Yeah, for sure. We see that in so, I mean, think of, I think about like, maybe this isn't, though this is the right time frame, like Pride and Prejudice and like all these things. I think that's, that Pride exactly. and Prejudice is later than this, but it's like, it's all about finding a husband. Yeah, no, that it's the same. Yeah, That's the same. exactly. Oscar Wilde, you know, yeah, Jane Austen. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay, so now we're moving to America. America, ni- 1718 in Pennsylvania, women are able to own and manage property. Congratulations if husbands are incapacitated. <laughs> if, yeah. All right, 1771. New York becomes the first U.S. state to require a woman's consent if her husband tries to sell property that she brought to a marriage. The act also required the judge to meet privately with the woman to reassure himself that the signature wasn't forged or her consent coerced. Interesting. Interesting. In 1839, Mississippi allows women to own property in their own names. It is the first state to do so. Wow. Mm -hmm. Go Mississippi. 1844, married women in Maine become the first in the U.S. to win the right to separate economy, which means they don't have to, you know, have joint bank accounts with their husband. Yeah. Um, 1848, Married Women's Property Act is passed in New York. It is later used as a model for other states, all of which passed their own versions by 1900. For the first time, a woman wasn't automatically liable for her husband's debts. She could enter contracts on her own. She could collect rent or receive an inheritance in her own right. She could file a lawsuit on her behalf. She be, she became, for economic pur- purposes, an individual as if she were still single. Woohoo! What New York? <laughs> we love you. Woo woo woo! <laughs> All right, eighteen sixty-two. My home state. This is my home state. Anyways, uh, <laughs> all right. 1862, the U.S. Homestead Act makes it easier for single, widowed, and divorced women to claim land in their own name. Oh, how exciting! Woo-hoo. In the same year, the California, oh, the California, California passed a law that established a state savings and loan industry that also guaranteed that a woman who made deposits in her own name was entitled to keep control of the money. Oh, thank you, thank you so much. The state recognized the full financial independence of women, and in 1862, the San Francisco Savings Union approved a loan to a woman. What's so mind blowing about all of this is we still don't have the right to vote. Like this is so. I know. I know. We're not even there yet. Okay. Crazy. 1872, Illinois grants freedom of occupational choice to both men and women. But when Myra Colby Bradwell, who studied at her husband's law, who studied at her husband's law apprenticeship, who studied, studied as, as, oh, as uh, her husband's keyword. law apprentice to pass Illinois bar, tries to practice as a lawyer. The U.S. Supreme Court rules in 1873 that the state doesn't have to grant a law license to a married woman. Yeah, that- so basically she tried to become a lawyer and she was like studying um, kind of under her law, her husband's like law uh, degree. Yeah. So she was studying under him and then like knew as much as him. I looked a little bit more into this. She tried to practice as a lawyer and they were like, well, we don't have to grant you a law license because you're married. So. Oh, cool. Yeah. That's a really odd one. Yep. Like they could have been like, oh, cause your hair is red. Like, yeah. Whatever like they that. wanted. Yeah. They were like, no, but you're married. So you, you have to stay home and be a wife. Got it. All right. You. 1880, Mary Gage opens a stock exchange for women who want to use their own money to speculate on railroad stocks. Is that so interesting? That's so cool, Mary Gage. Yeah. And then, um, meanwhile, notorious cheapskate Hetty Green. Have you heard of her? No. She's known as the Witch of Wall Street, which is the most badass name ever. Um, She's consolidating her own fortune. So she was on Wall Street. In 1880. Holy shit, that's so freaking. Yeah, Hetty Green. Yeah. Hetty Green. Oh my God, I want to know more about Hetty Green. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, Oregon limits the workday for women to 10 hours, 
with the implication that women are too fragile to work much longer than that, or they needed, or they are needed at home. So it's so funny because I'm like, that's great. Like maybe it's because they want them home and they want to work, you know, and I was thinking all these nice fairy things. And then it's like, no, because women are too fragile. Yep. Screw you. Big. Yeah. Yeah. 1919, first Women's Bank of, Bank of Tennessee opens to cater to women customers only. While the bank employees and directors were women, its shareholders were male. Okay. Womp, womp. <laughs> In 1921, Alice Mary Robertson of Oklahoma becomes the second woman in Congress running on an anti-feminist platform, including an opposition to women's rights to votes. Great. And education on maternity and child care. Is she, wait. Yeah. yeah, you read that right. Okay. Yeah, she became the second woman in Congress, but she was an anti-feminist platform, so she was like Great. against women. Great. She saves special scorn for the League of Women Voters or any other organization that will be used as a club against men and says, I came to Congress to represent my district, not women, showing that having and getting money are crucial for all women. Even in politics, she loses her seat for not appropriating enough cash for her district. Yay. She serves for two years before being voted out of office. Awesome. You don't deserve to be there, man. Alice Mary Robertson. Yeah, like literally it's well, it's happening in our uh, government right okay. now where <laughs> where a woman is using all of the work that women before her have done to even be able to get her to a congressional seat for Alice, for example, yeah. and then using her power that she gained through these women to then knock down other women. Yep, exactly. Uh, well, know. in 1924, Wyoming elects the first, the nation's first female governor, Nellie Taylor Ross. Go Nell. Go Nell. Um, <laughs> go, go, go Nell. <laughs> in 1938, the federal minimum wage is born with the Fair Labor Standards Act, wiping out common pay differences between men and women for hourly jobs. Huh? Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Curious to see how that uh, adds up later on. Yep. 1963. So we're in 1963 now. Not that long ago. Not that long ago. My dad was alive. Mm-hmm. 1963. Yep. The U.S. passes the first legislation requiring equal pay for equal work, but it would need to be expanded in 1972 to salespeople, executives, administrators, and more. Okay. 1967. Lyndon B. Johnson uh, 1965 affirmative action benefits are expanded to cover women. Oh, cool. Mm-hmm. 1968, it becomes illegal to place help wanted ads spe- specifying gender in the U.S. Mm. I remember learning this in school. Mm-hmm. 1969, Colgate, Palmo, Palmo, that's like the, um, the soap that people yeah. use. Yeah. Palm, palm olive. Palm Olive. There you go. Palm oh, yeah. Olive. Palm Olive. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good job, okay. Lays women off from their jobs rather than put them to physical work to protect our ladies. In Bow versus Colgate, Palm Olive, <laughs> and appeals court rules physical labor cannot be limited to men. 1969. This company laid off women because they didn't want to put them to physical work. They're like, oh, they're too fragile. That's so bizarre. Like, that's just so strange. Like, why? Because they're idiots. But then that same year, that ruled that that wasn't okay. So that's, you know, we're getting somewhere. I'm just curious, Um, like, where that decision came from. Like, is it actually, like, they were looking at the stats and they were, like, men move faster than women in this particular thing? Or was it, like, just a chauvinist who was, like, screw women? That's a good question. Yeah. I don't know. But... My guess would be the second one. I don't know. I, I don't know. I, I've had this discussion about physicality with Brett um, yeah. before and, you know, about sports and, you know, there's, I mean, the majority of men are stronger than the majority of women physically. Yeah. So I'm just curious about that one. Um, yeah. yeah. It's interesting. All right. 1970, Schultz versus Wheaton Glass. A federal appeals court decision makes it illegal for a company to change a job's title so that they could pay women who held the position less than male workers. 
Hmm. <clears throat> Sneaky. Yep. 1972, Catherine Graham, um, sitcom of a company that owns the Washington Post, becomes the first woman to become CEO of a Fortune 500 company. Cool. That's me clapping. Right. Uh, yeah, 1972. Keep that, that date in mind. Not that long ago. 1974, Equal Credit Opportunity Act passes in the U.S. Until then, banks required single, widowed, or divorced women to bring a man along to co-sign any credit application, regardless of their income. They would also discount the value of those wages when considering how much credit to grant by as much as 50%. Yeah. This is what what holds women back so much when you can't, when you have to bring a fucking man to co-sign any type of credit application. Yeah. Insane. 1975, the first woman-owned commercial bank opens in New York City. First woman's bank at which Betty uh, Friedan had an account. Mm -hmm. 1978, the Pregnancy Discrimination Act is passed in the U.S. Until the law was put into effect, women could still legally be dismissed from their jobs for becoming pregnant. It's so crazy because I actually know a, a lot of people who now were like afraid of losing their job because they were pregnant. Mm, yeah, it definitely still happens. Yep. Um, 1980, sexual harassment is first defined by the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, although a court has heard the first case in 1977. So sexual harassment, 1980, that it's so fascinating because like the 80s is so like that is the 80s sexual harassment, mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. bringing to light. And it's so fascinating. So um, my Nana, <clears throat> what? Um, Brad Kamenoff, is that who it was, who um, was going to the Supreme Court? I forget his name. Brad Kavanaugh, is that who you're talking about? Yeah, Brad Kavanaugh. And yeah, yeah. my Nana was like, is- was You don't want him to be named Brad. <laughs> I don't want him to what? Be named Brad. <laughs> oh, no, I said Brad. I didn't say Brad. Oh, oh. I no, was, it is. It's Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, it's Brett Kavanaugh. Oh, that's so yeah. funny. I was like, no, I did not say his name was Brett. Um, that's so funny. Um, you yeah, just change that, change it in your mind. I'm just changing his name. So, um, my Nana, like, was like, when I was 16 and worked, cause she, that was like the only time she ever worked in her life. Cause then she got married at 17. Um, she was like, you know, I'd go to the office and someone might like touch my, you know, my butt, but it was just a flirty, friendly thing. And I was like, no, Nana, you have mm -hmm. no idea what it's like to feel unsafe in your body. You have no idea what the repercussions of that is. And I got so mad, but in her world, she was like, it was so innocent. And now things are just so much more complicated. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, yeah, because fortunately nothing bad ever happened to you. Yeah. Fortunately. Yeah. Easily could have. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 1981, the last vestiges of a husband being able to keep a wife in the dark, at least legally, vanish, thanks to Kirchberg versus Feenstra. A husband is told he doesn't have the right to unilaterally take out a second mortgage on property held jointly with his wife. Awesome. Must have happened enough to have a law about it. Mm -hmm. 1993, the Family and Medical Leave Act begins in law in the u.s wow 1993 what the yeah, fuck i know oh it's my so God. crazy and it's so sad it's like here's six weeks yeah yep um 2007 the supreme court rules in ledbetter versus goodyear that women have to sue for discriminatory pay as soon as it occurs and can't bring a lawsuit for pay discrimination if more than 180 days have passed the case was based on lily ledbetter's career at goodyear where after decades of work her pay as a supervisor was lower than the lowest paid man of comparable seniority oh mm -hmm. in 2009 president barack obama signed the lily ledbetter fair pay restoration act which allows people to sue companies for pay discrimination even if more than six months have passed Woo! so just two years later they yeah they turned it around good okay cool all right 2014, nearly two-thirds of minimum wage workers are women, and the movement to raise the, the minimum wage sweeps the country. In a success for the U.S. fight for 15, which is $15 as the minimum wage movement, Seattle raises its minimum wage to $15, and several other cities and states raise their minimum wage ceilings too, but many still lag, and the federal minimum wage is still at $7.25 an hour or a poverty-level wage. Minimum wage bills languish in both the House and the Senate. Yeah, I so 
before I was living abroad, I remember the minimum wage in New York being seven twenty-five or maybe $8 an hour. And then I came home and so I was gone from like 2012 to 2015 and I came home and the minimum wage was like 15 bucks in New York or 13 bucks in New York. And I was like, what happened? <laughs> I remember because when I was waitressing, I used to not make any money for my paychecks. And then yeah. I was making, because I would just get tips and it would just cancel out and go to tax. Well, I think that's still um, a rule. Like they, you can pay waiters, like four, it's like three or $4 an hour. Not, not, not anymore. I mean, not in New York anyways. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I remember being like, oh my God, I can't believe. Yeah. It was so funny. I was like, cause I had left and then I came back and it was double, you know? Yeah. It was nuts. Yeah. Um, but, and also back then when I was waitressing, I was only making like $3 an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Yep. That is interesting. Anyways, what we, what we really wanted to share that like timeline because there's so many interesting nuggets that like I didn't even know before I read through this and also for me the biggest takeaway is just a a couple things one I'm so fucking grateful for where we are today because it took a lot of women and a lot of hard work to to get the rights that we have it was not inherent and two like we still have so far to go um it also makes me so grateful for law. Yeah. Um, so one of my, so three of my really good friends are lawyers and one of my um, really good friends is a lawyer and she's like an Aquarius, typical Aquarius. Like I'm going to fight injustice within the mm-hmm. organization. And, um, and like a lot of the stuff that she's working on is like, like has like direct impact on the lives of right now children, but it's, she's worked in women's rights and it's like, it's just crazy how the law is. So it's not crazy. It's just, it blows my mind how like creating law will change the course of everybody's life around Mm -hmm. the law, whether it's state or, um, or, you know, the fed, it's just unbelievable what a couple of like really good conscious lawyers can do. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. Well, that's actually a perfect segue because, um, I want to talk a little bit more in depth about Lily Ledbetter because she's a fucking badass. And, um, we wanted to highlight a couple like really awesome women throughout history who worked on women's financial issues. Um, and this is a case that everybody should know. And I did not know it before we did, we researched for this we did research for this podcast which is crazy because it like just happened but just to go a little bit more in depth lily what worked at goodyear tire and rubber co for a really long time like decades um she she worked as a supervisor and she worked there for 19 years she received an anonymous note revealing that she was making thousands less per year than the men in her position um and it was only when she knew as she was nearing retirement that she learned this. So like throughout the course of her job, she didn't know that she was making a lot less, which is also a plug for talking about money because if she had known this, she could have done something about it earlier. Um, So it ended up, so that letter led her to file a sex discrimination case against Goodyear, obviously for paying her less than her male counterparts. She sued Goodyear, but the judgment was reversed on appeal by the 11th circuit. And then eventually the lawsuit reached the Supreme court, which ruled against her because she didn't file the lawsuit within 180 days from the date of the discriminatory policy, which was the law at the time. So they basically were like, oh, it passed 180 days. Like you're screwed, which is bullshit. Um, And then, Oh, it's really, actually, this is interesting. In the in dissent, the United States Supreme uh, Court Ru- Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg wrote, Lily Ledbetter was a supervisor at Goodyear Tire and Rubber Plant from 1979 until her retirement. For most of those years, she worked as an area manager, a position largely occupied by men. So on top of all of this, she was like in a place where she was one of the only women in this position. Um, when she started her salary was in line with the salaries of men. 
which is really interesting. Like she started at the same level, but then over time her pay slipped in comparison to the pay of male area managers was equal or less seniority. By the end of 1997, Ledbetter was the only working woman as an area manager and the pay discrepancy between Ledbetter and her 15 male counterparts was stark. Ledbetter was paid $3,700 about per month and the lowest paid male area manager received $4,200 per month. And the highest paid was 5,200. Yeah. So like a huge difference in pay. Yeah. Um, and then basically, as we talked about, um, eventually this became, this issue turned into the Lilly Ledbetter Fair Pay Act, which was actually President Barack Obama's first official piece of legislation as president was this, that was this law. So, um, yeah, he said that when he came into office, we passed something called the Lily Ledbetter Act, named after a good friend of mine who had worked for years and found out long into her work that she had been getting paid all these years less than men. She brought suit and they said, well, it's too late to file suit because you should have filed suit right when it started happening. And she was like, I just found out. So she couldn't have done it anyways. And they said, it doesn't matter. So we changed that law to allow somebody like Lily when they found out to finally be able to go ahead and file suit. And, uh, by 2011, over 350 cases had already cited the Ledbetter decision as inspiration for bringing their, their case to court. So she inspired so many women. Um, and actually, it's really interesting. I saw that, or I read that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had framed a copy of the Lily Ledbetter Fair Pay Act in her chambers. She oh. was like really proud of that one. Um, and it's interesting because passage of the act never resulted in Ledbetter receiving a settlement from Goodyear. So she never received money from them. Um, and although she will never receive money from Goodyear, she said, I'll be, Lily said, I'll be happy if the last thing they say about me after I die is that I made a difference. So cute. And then, um, a few years later, I think she was speaking at the democratic national convention or something. And she said, this cause, which bears my name is bigger than me. It's as big as all of you. This fight, which began as my own is now our fight, a fight for the fundamental American values that make our country great. She also declared that what we lose can't just be measured in dollars. Well, she didn't even know she lost it for 19 <laughs> years. True, but wow. it's true. Like you, you, we don't just lose it in dollars. It, as we always talk about money affects everything. It affects everything. It affects everything. Wow. That's a, that's a really good story. Badass. Badass. Um, so I went more on like the emotional route of the people that I wanted to talk about, which is like, cool. I mean, I, I was like, oh my God, I love yours. I'm like, oh, I wish I'd gotten to more details about that, but that's um, totally fine. so the first person I want to talk about is my guru, Susie Orman. Mm, I love her. Um, so, um, so some fun, like little tidbits about Susie Orman before she became Susie Orman. And, and fun fact is like, I remember Susie Orman from them making fun of her on SNL when I was a kid. Mm. And that's all I knew of Susie Orman until like four years ago. Um, I was just like, yeah, she was always made fun of on SNL. (laughs) (laughs) And she always, she had a weird way of speaking. And that was it. I never watched any of her shows because I never watched QVC. Like I never watched that stuff. Um, She does have a weird way of speaking and I love it. (laughs) I do Oh, I, I mean, I can't imitate it. It's just mm-hmm. like, so anyways, so growing up, she, um, she grew up really, um, poor and she had a speech impediment and, um, and that made her struggle to read. So I'm re- immediately relating to her because she felt like for a long time, like that she wasn't going to be successful academically. Mm-hmm. Um, so she, um, went to college. This is so funny. She goes to college and she goes to a community college and she's like, I want to be a brain surgeon. And they were like, I like, nope, that's not going to happen. And then she goes, okay, I'll take the easy route and I'll be a social worker, which like is not an easy route. It's just so funny. Like yeah. my, my best friend, Brittany is a social worker and she, it was a full-time job getting that degree and she worked her ass off. So I felt, I love how she's like, I took the easy route and became a social worker, which also is very interesting because there's so much personal development attached to Susie Orman. Like she's not obviously just talking about money. Um, So that makes sense. That's her background. Um, So then she um, goes, so she doesn't graduate college because she doesn't pass her Spanish class. 
and then just decides <laughs> to leave it from one degree because, and I, I, I resonated so much with that because I, I remember like there was a year in college where like, I, I got my grade in like August because I was just like putting off my last paper. It was just so sinful. And like, but that's like that saboteur of like, I'm, you know, I'm not worthy or like, mm-hmm. I'm not like smart enough or whatever was going on with me. Um, but it was just nice to relate to that with Susie. And so then she, um, she decides to go, um, borrow like $1,500 from her brother to get a van and travel around like the United States. But I think she only ends up in California, which is funny, <laughs> but she like turns the RV into a place that she can sleep. So she's like really adventurous as an adventurous spirit ends up working at like, um, there was like a frost in California. So they had to get rid of all these eucalyptus trees. So she spends too much work, two months working at this eucalyptus place farm to like clean up all these trees. Um, and then she decides to go. And so what I liked about that is that she's scrappy and she's like, I'll take totally. any job, whatever. Um, and then she becomes a waitress and she works at this waitress as a waitress in the same restaurant for seven years, making $400 a month. That's insane. Uh-huh. And she, um, and she decides that she wants to own her own restaurant. She's like, I want to be more than just a waitress. She's 29 years old at this point. And she calls her parents and she goes, I need $20,000. And they're like, what makes you think we have that money? And she actually ends up feeling really horrible that she even like made her parents feel that way because she was like, I know they want me to succeed. They just don't have the means to do it. Right. And, um, and so she was like, it's really sad at the baker at the bakery that she worked at in this and her local guy Fred was like hey what's wrong you're not as chipper as you normally are and he was like she was like I want to open up a bakery I asked my parents for twenty thousand dollars they said no and he was like he like starts going around to all the locals because apparently it's like this local hangout and they hand her like a two thousand dollar check and they're like pay us back in 10 years no interest we believe in you go get your bakery go put your money in Merrill Inch in a market fund. So she walks over to Merrill Inch and she's like, has all this money now. She almost has the $20,000 to go pay for this bakery from all of these donations from, from the other, from people. And I really resonated with this because I am standing on the kindness of strangers and friends and family. Uh, I am not, I could not be where I am today without people lending a hand for me. Um, And so it, I, I love that part of the story. And so she goes to this guy and he goes, she tells him her situation. I'm 29. I have no other sort. Of, I make $400 a month. I need this. I, it's a loan. This money's a loan. I need to return it back. And he goes, do you want to make a hundred dollars a week? And she's like, that's how much I make at the bakery. Like, yes. And he puts her money in a high risk um, account. And long story short, she loses all of the money. Oh my God. He, I mean, he absolutely like legally could not do, he, she told her, she told him her risk factor. So she decides instead of to like be defeated by this, to go get a job at Merrill Lynch. Cause she was like, fuck yeah. If anybody could be a broker, if this asshole could be a broker, then I could be a broker. Yeah. And so she starts working there and she's like literally wearing cowboy boots and like these red pants. And she goes in and they're like, who is this girl? And basically <laughs> she said, she's like, I only got hired because they had a female quota that they needed to meet. And he yeah. literally said to her, like, you're going to be out of here in six months. So she's doing all this research and she realized what that guy did was illegal because she told him her that she was not a high risk, that she wanted something that she had to owe that money back, that she just wanted it to grow steadily, that she didn't have the means to pay it. But if she lost it all, it would Mm. be huge ramifications. And she's like, this is illegal what he did. And they basically said like, stay in your lane, keep quiet. This guy's made me a lot of money. So she sued them. And because she sued them while she was working for them, they couldn't fire her, which I think Mm. is so fucking bold because so many women won't, so many women won't even talk to their bosses about like, if they're overworking or if yeah. like if they're pregnant, if they need, you know, like they're so afraid and she just went and sued them, which is like, God, going into the office every day, knowing that you sued them is like, 
like yeah are because they're scared that people will know and like she just went and sued them she's such a badass and so um eventually um they ended up paying her the full amount plus interest that she would have earned um but that took some time and then um she lived a lot of fraud for a while, like, you know, living above her means, getting into credit card debt. Like she was just trying to get by for a long time and, um, and live in the image of what a financial advisor looks like or a broker looks like. And, you know, eventually she started developing her, you know, continue to develop her self-worth and she's the Susie Orman we are today. But um, she really um, paved the way for a lot of women, um, one, to one to be able to even consider being in a financial institution and working in a financial institution, but also because she's made financial literacy so possible for so Mm -hmm. many people. She makes it so accessible. Obviously she's written 10 um, New York times bestseller books um, and she breaks it down and she's very spiritual and emotional about, about money. And it's not about the dollar amount, you know, the way she talks about the stock market, she's like, it's, it's, it's about like your relationship to the stocks. It's like, it's not about like, oh, this is, a, you know, she does say get a good a stock with good dividends. But other than that, she's very much like, you like that company, invest in that company. You don't yep. like the company, don't invest in that company. Like, yep. Yep. Um, yeah. And so uh, I just, I love her story. It's so relatable, especially for me. She came from nothing. She didn't think she had anything. And I'm excited because my second person is Oprah, which I'll talk about after your person. Mm-hmm. And they had, they, they both came from poverty and the way that their families dealt with it was so different. Susie was in poverty and was basically told you're always going to be, you're always going to be poor. Like don't aim for much where Oprah was not. And, um, and they, but they both took the bull by the horns and said, I'm going to make my own life for myself. Yeah. I fucking love Susie Orman. I know she's that. <laughs> I also just love everything that she puts out because it's not about shame. Whereas like people like Dave Ramsey, it's like so based in shame. And she really flipped that script and was like, no, this is to empower women and to empower people to be financially free, which is just awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Um, All right. My other um, badass lady is Maggie Walker who I actually took like a different approach and kind of went back in history. So she was actually born in 1864 Mm -hmm. and uh, she died in like 1934. So she's like, you know, a historical figure, but she's still a badass. She was the first African-American woman to charter a bank and serve as its president in the United States. What? How is that even possible? I know. I know. Well, I will tell you. Um, She also, a really interesting side note about her is that she was disabled by paralysis and a wheelchair um, for like the later part of her life. So she became a really awesome example for people with disabilities. Like she did this as a disabled um, African-American woman in like the early 1900s. Badass. 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 Um, so she was born two years and two months after the end of the American Civil War. So like right at the cusp, her mother was a former slave, which is crazy. Um, and she, her biological father was actually an Irish born Confederate soldier, which is crazy. Yeah. Yep. Did he rape his, did he rape? I mean, probably. So First, off the bat, she's born as a child of these two people, probably by rape. Yeah. So at first she was a teacher, um, but she actually left her teaching position and devoted herself to the Order of St. Luke. I don't know if you've heard of that. I hadn't, but it's a it's a, actually pretty famous. It's a society that kind of ministered to the sick and age and it promoted humanitarian causes and just like was a cool society that uplifted people and like did humanitarian work. Um, and she basically just like was really good at her her job and like rose through its ranks really quickly. She, um, was, she established a juvenile branch of the order in 1895, um, while serving as its grand deputy matron. Um, and this branch of the order encouraged education, community service, and thrift in young members. In 1902, she published a newspaper for the organization so she's just like all over the map like doing badass stuff 
Um, and then after the newspaper, she decided to charter the St. Luke Penny Savings Bank. So that was her bank. She served as the president. Um, and that's how she gets the recognition of being the first African-American woman to charter a bank. Um, she also, what was really awesome is she made sure that all the leadership in her bank or most of the leadership was female board members. So this was like in the early 1900s, a mostly female run bank, which is awesome. Um, she also, eventually the bank merged with two other banks in the Richmond area where it was in Virginia. Um, and it eventually these like three banks grew to serve generations of Richmonders as an African-American owned institution. So it's an African-American owned bank, which is awesome. Um, a side note, which is cool, is in 2001, she was actually inducted in the Junior Achievement U.S. Business Hall of Fame, which is awesome. Um, but yeah, basically, she is just a badass. Like, she just really, like, paved the way for African-American and especially African-American women to be able to, like, control their own money. She, like, was, she did a ton of education. That was, like, her main focus because she had this background as a teacher to just educate people and especially women in her area on like personal finance and banks and like keeping your money and in, in a bank and like what that meant. Um, now her old house is actually a national historic site. And I really, I thought that this summary from the National Park Service is really awesome. It said, through her guidance of the Independent Order of St. Luke, Walker demonstrated that African-American men and women could be leaders in business, politics, and education during a time when society insisted on the contrary. Yeah. Dope. Badass. Virginia is such an interesting state. Like It is. There's so much like uh, renaissance and like... Uh, in history, there's been so many amazing things that happened. And then there's also been such like horrible, like, I know. Yeah. Republican ideology. Not that Republicans are, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to get political, but like right now, currently. Um, yeah. yeah. Anyways. So fascinating. So fascinating. That's cool. That's Mary should be a household name. Maggie Walker, Maggie Walker, Maggie Walker, fucking dope. Go Maggie. You're amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. Okay. So we're going to talk about uh, a little, a little known household name, Oprah. Um, so, <laughs> have you heard of her? <laughs> have you heard of her? So very, starting from the inception, her name was supposed to be um, Opa, Opar, but it was spelled wrong. And so she became Oprah. And so no way I didn't know that so this per so the person was um was um a character from the Bible like a person from the Bible oh and when you look her up she's no significant she is a side character like she's just like mentioned she's the sister of Ruth who has a little bit bigger of a role and that's it she is like non-sequential and so I was so and I'm a really big believer that your name has a lot of power um, and to be named Oprah, which is so unique and different, I feel like set the stage for her life. Totally. Uh, as opposed to being just a sidekick, a one-time mention, maybe like two lines mentioned about this character. Yeah. So she was raised poor in Mississippi and her parents um, separated. They were never married and she lived for the first formative years um, with her grandma and her grandma taught her how to read at two and a half years old. Damn. So, so when, when Oprah went to kindergarten, she wrote a letter to her teacher saying that she should move up to first grade. <laughs> she moves up to first grade. And I, I actually think she skipped second grade also. Like she was clearly like, uh, a prodigy at that age, you know, like mm -hmm. very young, two and a half reading it to, I couldn't read until I was seven, you know, mm -hmm. like talk about developmental differences. Right. Yeah. Um, so at like 12 years old, she knew her path, which is that she wanted to get paid to speak. Um, she actually got a $500 grant for a speech she wrote when she was seven. 
Wow. $500 in the sixties. That's a lot, that's a lot of, of money. money. Yeah. At seven years old. Damn. Yeah. So, um, so she was back and forth between, so she lived with her mom and then she, she lived with her grandma and then they sent her to her mom thinking her mom was more stable. And unfortunately it was here when she started having, um, being sexually abused by mm-hmm. her cousin, her mom, some of her mom's boyfriends an uncle that, and that persisted for a while. Um, she lived with her dad for a bit and she loved that. Um, he made her read a, one book a week and would make her write essays on the book in addition to all of her homework. And she started accelerating in school, doing amazing. She got a scholarship. So she moved back with her mom. Her mom demanded to have her back and she moved back with her mom and she got these scholarships to these white um, private schools. And she was the only um, only African-American in the private schools in Milwaukee. And um, she started acting out because of all of the torment that was within her from being sexually abused. And she started sleeping with like 20, she's, it's a like 20 year old white men. She was like 14 years old. Wow. Yeah. She, um, she started stealing, you know, from her mom and buying clothes and trying to fit in. And her mom sent her back to her dad. And she says that her dad saved her life because she was, she was pregnant at 14. (sighs) And the baby died. Like she went to term and the baby died two weeks after it was born. Oh my God. At 14 years old. I did not know that. I know. And, um, and her dad, you know, she finally told her dad and her stepmom what was happening to her. And they got, they were strict. They gave her guidance, you know, they gave her love and they gave her discipline. And so she, she got back into school, you know, when you're 14, you're so unbelievably resilient, you know, she just kept going, she just kept going and, and um, she got a full scholarship to the University of Tennessee. And at 19 years old, sophomore in college, she ended up working on TV at, as uh, Nashville's versus African American female um, co-anchor, like doing the evening news at 19 years old in college. Um, and that kind of started her trajectory for her whole, I mean, her whole life was just, she spent, then she moved to Baltimore. She spent seven years there. Um, her ratings were better than like the top white, um, anchor and they, they moved her around. I think she moved to the Midwest, Chicago. Um, and she, um, and she was outperforming the white, um, you know, talk like daytime talk show hosts. And he ended up moving to New York and that's the, the Oprah that we know now. Mm. Um, and her net worth is $3 billion. Hell yeah. And so something that I was talking about with Brett yesterday, there's, um, we are big hockey fans and there was a hockey player who got a, so there's a cap in hockey. It's not like, um, it's not like football or baseball or basketball where you can make $300 million in a contract. Mm -hmm. Um, The cap is 80, the whole team has to live in $85 million. Um, And so he was saying that this guy got a $9 million contract, which is huge. I mean, if the cap is $85 million and this guy on this team is getting a $9 million contract, like that's a big deal. Like that's rare. And they, he was telling me that he's performing horribly. They benched him for this last game. They were like, you're not playing. And I, and I was, and, you know, Brett was like, you know, sometimes too much money can get in your head. And I totally agree with that. Like there's a, you know, a lot of people, I mean, they win the lottery and they spend it immediately. There's that Mm -hmm. psychology of like, sometimes it's too much money. You're earning too much and you can't handle the pressure yet. Oprah so gracefully handles the pressure of, Totally. Of, of bringing in through her own laurels three billion dollars uh, of and it's and what's so interesting in the juxtaposition between her and Susie Orman is that Oprah was was born poor and her mother was a maid and her dad you know was a vet and she because of the because nobody around her especially her dad and her grandma let her believe that she was less than she went on to this to achieve greatness because she 
was held at such a higher standard. Like Susie Orman was not held at a high standard. Susie Orman was expected to just be a waitress for the rest of right. her life. And Oprah was expected to do, to have, to be great. Yeah. And, um, and it's just so amazing. And I mean, she's led the way for so many women. I mean, me, African-American women, any woman of color, like, if like she's given so, I mean, one, she gives and so generous, but she also like made me feel growing up that it was like normal for a woman to be like a talk show host and to yeah. be successful talk show host. And, um, and every path that she's taken, I'm like, Oh, if, she, if Oprah can do it, then I can do it. Like for sure. Like it's, it's always been that way for me since I was a kid. Like if, you know, she had a platform when I was so young and I was like, that's normal for a woman to have a platform. Mm. Um, and she's always stood up for herself and stood up for her worth. And I've always admired her worth. She has, you know, and, and she has, you know, insecurities about weight and she's insecurities about the way she looks and all of these things. And she still shows up and she still stands in her worth. And, um, I admire the hell out of her. Yeah. So do I, she's another badass. There's so many, I could talk about this for hours. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but yeah, I, I, I loved this. And I think we should definitely do like a thread on social media to keep informing people and like educating our audience about women and money in history. Yeah. I mean, some of these people like Maggie Walker, like should be a household name. She's a badass. Like, yeah. and it's just, I think the more that we highlight these women, the better our whole society will be. Yeah, for sure. Well, I, I do want to end on... Um, some interesting points that I found in an article from Glamour. I think it's really important to note that as we talk about women's history and women's financial history, a lot of the times, um, and just like, even if we, when we read that like historical timeline, that was highlighting white women a lot. Um, and so I think it's really important to note that like there are intersections and differences between gender and race and just talk about that briefly. Um, so I wanted to read a couple notes, a couple things that I pulled from this article that are really interesting. So for women overall, it takes about 16 months to make what a white man makes in 12. But for black women, that number is higher. It takes 20 months to even out. Native American women won't meet the benchmark until late September. Latinas will hit it in November. So like, as we're talking about all of this, this stuff throughout history, like, let's just keep that in mind. Um, there is this really interesting quote from Alicia, Gar Alicia Gar Garza. Um, she said that when you hear statistics about the gender wage gap in America, we often hear that women make 78 cents on the dollar that white men make. Actually, those are statistics looking specifically at white women. What it points to is that the economy is organized by race and by gender all at the same time. There are communities who sit at the intersection and one of those communities is black women. So if we're not looking at how the economy is organized by race and gender and the communities that sit at those intersections, when we try to develop policies or solutions to a pervasive problem, we will leave communities behind and black women are very susceptible to that. I think what she also talked about, which is really interesting to me, is she was talking about how what's really important to note is that Black communities are rarely asked how and what they experience in the economy, democracy, and society. So it's like really turning back the lens and asking Black women, Black communities, like, what are you experiencing in order to create these policies? Um, and then she, the article also talks a lot about um, black transgender women, which is a whole nother separate issue. Um, because as we're looking at black women, that's not elevating even more marginalized communities. And so I, it's just a really interesting to note that as we talk about these issues and we talk through Women's History Month, Women's Financial History, um, we have to include everybody. Black transgender women, actually, um, it's just so important to, to lift them up or else if we don't lift them up, then they're going to get left behind. And and we will remain stagnant. And so basically, if we're going to make the changes that we wanna see, we have to be building coalitions with everybody, every marginalized group, black trans women, we have to lift them up because if you look at the numbers and the statistics, like it just gets lower and lower with more marginalized communities. So I just wanted to say that as we continue to talk about these issues, 
there's so many badass women out there and like we just have to all lift every single person up and if we lift up the most marginalized communities then we're lifting everybody up with that yep great way to end yeah thank, thank you for that of course Amazing. I love this conversation and I do really want to keep the thread going on social media. Um, you can follow us at beyond the green coaching and we'll keep it going. Yeah. Before we uh, leave, uh, three things, three things <laughs> are grateful for. That was such a funny noise. Um, I'm grateful for all the women throughout history whose backs I stand on, who did the work so that I can be where I'm at today and have the rights that I have, have just like all the opportunities that I have. Even the fact that I can be a financial coach is fucking incredible. And I'm so grateful for all of them. Um, I'm grateful for a sunshiny day. Like I'm just feeling really good. The sun is shining. I'm gonna go outside and just like appreciate being alive. And I'm grateful for you. Thank you for, um, wanting to have these conversations with me and recognizing how important it is and creating the space so that we can have these conversations. Oh, um, okay. I am grateful. I'm also, um, one of my favorite things in, at the end of, um, a yoga class is when they say, um, like bow to yourself and then bow to all the teachers who came before you. And mm -hmm. I really am resonating with that, especially right now. I mean, I'm so grateful that I was born and raised in New York City where all of my friends' parents were successful female entrepreneurs or um, lawyers or doctors, or um, I just didn't know. I didn't know women couldn't do things men couldn't do. It was just how I was raised and I'm so grateful for that. Um, I'm really grateful for all of the trauma and the, the struggles that I had financially. It's so wonderful to read and hear other people's struggles and adversities and be like, that's what made you who you are. And I love my life and I'm so grateful for the life that I have. So it's okay that I'm all those steps were leading to this. Mm -hmm. And, um, and likewise, I'm really grateful for you. I, I think that we're hitting a chord of something that we both really love, which is um, history and inform and like informing people and talking about stories and getting a clear picture on where we came from as a culture and a society. And, um, I'm excited to do this more with you because this was really fun. It was, and I'm excited to share it with other people. I hope that, um, everybody really enjoyed this episode because it was so fun to research and talk through. Yeah. I can't wait to do more. Um, that was a blast, um, a blast, a blast. Well, <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for listening. This podcast was presented by Beyond the Green Coaching. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and our website, beyondthegreencoaching.com. Um, we are offering our um, Heal Your Relationship with Money course and become financially free. It starts March 16th. There are only a few spots left. So if you are interested, shoot us a message. Uh, hello at beyondthegreencoaching.com. Thanks, everybody. Yay. Thank you, everybody. Talk to you next week. Bye.